The other day, we were passing around an amazing piece from the Atavist by the writer Chris Collin. And the story was about a dude whose life read like a movie script. And when we finished reading Chris Collins' piece, we leapt to our feet and insisted that our own Stephanie Fu go out and get the tape. Stephanie, dim the lights. Roll tape. Act 1, Scene 1, Backyard in London, 1973. Simon Lewis speaks. I am dead, Horatio. Wretched queen, adieu. The thing that made me first passionate about movies was as a kid, when I was in high school, I wrote and adapted Shakespeare's Macbeth and turned that into an 8mm film. You that look pale and tremble at this chance. A few years later, when Simon left for university, his parents moved to Los Angeles which he thought was perfect. I knew that was my great chance to jump into the movie business. And starting out, I really wanted to make any film that I could. And he really means any film. For example, he produced the notoriously bad Chud 2. Chud 2. This Chud's for you. It was pure Hollywood magic. Simon climbed the Hollywood ranks. Soon he was representing Howie Mandel and John Travolta. And that was how I became involved as co-producer of the original Look Who's Talking. Look Who's Talking is a movie about a baby, and the audience can hear all of the baby's thoughts, which are voiced by Bruce Willis. Fellas, listen, I got something cold and wet in my shorts down here, guys. And I thought that was a magic concept. Not surprisingly, the studio did not agree, but Simon was determined to get this movie made. I was enormously charming, enormously persuasive, and when I met at the studio, I was able to defend every aspect of the picture. The biggest star of 1989 was also the smallest. The studio made over $100 million just from the first picture. Simon's career blew up. He was huge in Hollywood. It was everything I dreamt of. And just when life couldn't get any better, He fell in love. I met Marcy. Her infectious love, her love of life, her extraordinary ability to make everybody feel like they were her best friend. She really was everything I could possibly have looked for in a soulmate. Everything was so perfect that you take everything for granted. And it was a mundane moment. We were talking about whether to take a detour before a restaurant. At that moment, a cargo van ran a stop sign of between 70 and 80 miles an hour. Simon's car flew across five lanes of traffic, flipped over a curb, and landed in a garden. And the first paramedics who ran up reported that there were no survivors in the car. When they cut the car apart, they found that that driver, me, still had a pulse. Simon was rushed to Cedars-Sinai Hospital. Most of his bones were broken, and his brain was hemorrhaging so much that blood started trickling out of his ears. His body had swollen to twice its size, but he was lucky. He was alive. Marcy had been killed on impact. Here's Simon's mother. Nobody's ever programmed for this situation, but when you get this call in the middle of the night, I didn't scream, I didn't this, the, just get dressed and go. And then you go into the intensive care and there's a tube coming out of every part of his body. Other people tell you, you know, you, you talk to them, they can hear you. I don't know. 
Simon was in a Glasgow coma scale three. That's the deepest level of coma there is. And if you're in this for more than a few hours, doctors anticipate severe brain damage. Simon was in the coma for a month. No one, no one that I'm aware of remembers the inside of a Glasgow coma scale three. No one? Except Simon. I remember the experience of what approaching death felt like. It was a boundless series of infinite vistas. You always feel at home because everyone knows your name. In the movies, coming back to life is like floating towards a bright light. But for him, it was a little different. There was a moment when I felt incredibly alone. I still remember it right now. This, the endless blackness that at that moment engulfed me. But when I opened my eyes, if you could imagine a baby being born for the very first time, all I could think about was the beauty of the light at the window. I didn't even know the word for a window. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know how to speak. He had to learn everything again, including who he was and what he had been. The moment when I remember my wife for the first time happened in the middle of the night when a fragment of memory returns to me. Images started to coalesce, and finally, my joy was total. All I could do was whisper with total joy to the night nurse that I, I'm married, I'm married to Marcy. The night nurse responded that it was very nice to hear that, and then she called my parents to come in. I went straight down to the hospital, and uh, when I went into the room, I said, Look, Simon, she died in the crash. So he took a photograph out of the drawer. He said, I'm going to say goodbye to her. That was all. The fact that I couldn't move, the fact that I couldn't talk, none of these things troubled me at all. With the loss of my wife, it was really the loss of everything that mattered to me. Slowly, as he acquired language again, Simon started to realize the irony of his situation. It seemed like two of the movies that he had created were coming true in real life. It's strange that I co-produced Look Who's Talking about an infant in thinking before it's even born, and then I went from being the top of my game as a Hollywood filmmaker to being completely dependent and a baby again in an infant stage. And even more ironically, the film that I was producing at the time of the crash was called Mother Night. In Mother Night, a messenger comes to tell a man that because of forces beyond his control, his wife has been killed. The other producers, who finished the film without him, invited Simon to the screening. When I saw the film playing, and there's a scene I'll never forget where Nick Nolte is walking down the sidewalk, and he just stops. He stands there as night falls. What froze me was the fact that I had absolutely no reason to move in any direction. And when I watched that, I, I, was, I, mean, I, I was in tears, quietly in the dark because I'd lost my wife and I knew exactly what that character was feeling. It was extremely, a terribly sad moment to realize that the film I'd been making had become, in some respects, my own experience. Simon felt that his script had been written and his ending would not be a happy one. But he hadn't even reached Act 3. After an evening of feeling sorry for himself, Simon woke up and found that he had lost the ability to speak once again. And I realized that things can always get worse. But then I thought that must mean that they can also always get better. 
And at that moment, I knew that the survivors never can feel sorry for themselves because it's not fair to the person that doesn't get that chance because I have a second opportunity of life. Simon went through physical therapy and got an experimental surgery that helped him walk again. He learned to read and write and went through cognitive therapy to raise his IQ. It took an incredibly long time before I felt that I was progressing. Over about 16 years, I went through hundreds and hundreds of hours of therapy. I was able gradually to inch up my IQ to over 150. Which is considered highly superior intelligence. This is not supposed to happen. Doctors thought it was a miracle, but Simon insists that it was simply tenacity. But there was one thing he couldn't overcome. Simon still has something called flat time. Flat time is the fact that the distant past and the present are the same for me. Basically, Simon remembers what he ate for breakfast today and a conversation he had two months ago, but he couldn't tell you what came first. Not understanding time sometimes makes it hard for Simon to get a narrative, but he missed telling stories. And so he decided to go back into the movie business. The film industry is Darwinian, so if you've been out of the industry, say, for six weeks, that's a long time. If you've been out of the film industry for a year, you really are a forgotten soul. I've been gone from the film industry for 17 years, so there is no precedent for that. But people remembered how Simon Lewis had gotten stuff done 20 years ago. Universal reopened a project he'd been working on back then and gave him a fresh turnaround period. Simon will be co-producing the film if it gets made. And I will be involved in the writing of the storyline. And, of course, after reading the script, Simon realized that the movie is about what makes us who we are, how we can lose it, and how we come back from that. Again, the movie is about him. But this time, he gets to write the ending. Unlike the world of fiction, in the world of non-fiction, in the real world, where we open our eyes each day and we feel the sun rise and shine, there are choices. Faced with the choice, do I roll over and give up, or do I go forward? I found reasons to go forward. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show Simon Lewis wrote a book about his recovery and about consciousness. It's called Rise and Shine. We'll have a link on our site. And also, big thanks to Chris Collin for his wonderful piece in Atavis, which led Snap to this story. We'll have a link on snapjudgment.org.